Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Lord, as I seek to open your word now, I ask your forgiveness for the way that I, as a so-called teacher, have used my own words to hurt others, even to hurt myself, to hurt this community. Would you forgive me, have mercy on me, and have mercy on us all as we seek to use our words to bring life and not death? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? Todd Beamer was 32 years old on September the 11th. He was in a panic on Flight 93, and he found his way into a pantry where the flight attendants keep their refreshments. He was desperately trying to make contact with someone not on the plane using his cell phone. He finally got in touch with an operator, an airline operator named Lisa Jefferson in Chicago, and this is a transcript of their conversation, Todd. Everyone is really scared. A few passengers with cell phones have made calls to relatives. A guy named Jeremy was talking to his wife just before the hijacking started, and she told him that hijackers are, had crashed two planes into the World Trade Center. Lisa, is, is that true? Lisa, Todd, I have to tell you the truth. It's, it's very bad. The World Trade Center is gone. Both of the towers have been destroyed. Todd, oh God, help us. Lisa says, a third plane was taken over by terrorists. It crashed into the Pentagon in D.C. Our country is under attack, and I'm afraid, Todd, that your plane may be a part of their plan. Oh, dear God, oh, dear God, Todd says. Lisa, will you do something for me? I'll try if I can. I want you to call my wife and my kids for me and tell them what's happened. Promise me you'll call. I promise, I promise, I'll call. Todd says, our home number is 201-353. You have the same name, Lisa, as my wife. Lisa, Lisa, we've been married for 10 years. She's pregnant with our third child. Tell her that I love her. I'll always love her. We have two boys, David, he's three, and Andrew, he's one. Tell them, tell them that their daddy loves them and that he's so proud of them. Our baby is due January 12th. I saw an ultrasound. It was great. We still didn't know if it's a girl or a boy. Lisa? Barely able to speak, Lisa says, I promise, Todd, I'll tell them. I'll tell them. We speak words Words, 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 every day, all day. And we take them for granted, don't we? It, 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 it's the kind of life and death moment between Todd and Lisa on that plane that sort of rips back the curtain of the mundane that wraps around our words to show us in reality how powerful words are. Words are a matter of life and death. Think about, for example, what we can do with our words. 
what we can do with them. I'm sorry. I apologize. That's an action. I forgive you. That's an action. I do. That's a commitment. A verdict is pronounced about someone else. Guilty. Not guilty. Words are a matter of life and death. This is true all throughout the scriptures. Words, how humans speak, really matters. It's a defining hallmark of what it means to be a wise person. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, Proverbs. Rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Again, Proverbs. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. St. Paul in Ephesians. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. St. Paul in Colossians. In our epistle lesson today, James picks up on this theme, this connection between words and life and death. The way that James connects words with life and death is the biblical idea of wisdom. Wisdom. Let me explain. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, and he's wanting them to thrive as a community. And he's writing in the style of a wisdom teacher. There's a whole selection of uh, a genre of literature in the Bible called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature goes like this. You've got to think Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Think Psalm 1. Remember, the, uh, the, the righteous man does this. The wicked man does that. This is what happens to the righteous. This is what happens to the wicked. Wisdom literature is built. It rests on the foundational idea that there are two ways to do life. One is God's and one is ours. One leads to blessing. One leads to cursing. One leads to life. One leads to death. In fact, Wisdom, uh, the, the, the idea that's running through wisdom literature, it courses through the whole Bible because really since God made the world, he embedded his wisdom in the fabric of creation itself. So to do life God's way is to have all of creation cheering you on. You are going with the grain of creation. To go against God's way, to live in foolishness, against the way of wisdom is literally to have Rain, hail, snow, mountains, trees, grass, everything is working against you. Everything, right? This is wisdom literature, two ways, life, death, wisdom, foolishness. So he's writing in this style to a group of Christians. He's like the wisdom writer of the New Testament. Let's put all of this together. Here's our main point, the main theme from James 3. How we speak is a matter of wisdom, and therefore it's a matter of life and death. How we speak is a matter of wisdom, and therefore, it's a matter of life and death. Okay, you say, James, tell me, because I, I want to be wise, right? I want to do life God's way. What do I need to know about speech to make this happen? James's answer, in short, in these 12 verses, is you've got to know that the tongue, that speech, is deceptive. It's deceptive. 
And it's deceptive, it tricks us, it confuses us in three ways. Here they are, all at once, and then we'll walk through them in the text. First, the tongue, our speech is deceptive in its directive power, the way it directs us through life. Second, the tongue is deceptive in its destructive potential. It's just one word, right? How could that set the whole community ablaze? But it's deceptive in how destructive it can be. And third, it's deceptive in its duplicitous productions. It's two-faced by, by its very nature. Let's walk through these together. If you've got the Pew Bible, the Blue Bibles, page 180, we're literally going to explore sort of James, as best as we can, train of thought, or what we think is his train of thought as he teaches us about words and life and death and wisdom. Let's start with his first point. James says, listen, Words are a matter of wisdom and life and death. And to get that, you've got to see how deceptive the tongue can be in the way it directs us. Look at verses two through five with me, page 180 on the Pew Bible. How powerful is the tongue? It can guide us, steer us, direct us, maneuver us. It's like the horse, verse three. You see that? Or it's like a a ship, a huge ship, verse four. The tongue, indeed, in some places, steers and guides and directs us, our human lives, verse 2. But that's not all. James says something more about its power, and this is where I want to land in this section. Verse 5, look at that verse. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. That is to say, the tongue is deceptively powerful because of its small size. It's a natural human tendency, is it not, to overlook something small, to underestimate it, to misjudge it, to dismiss it even. But don't underestimate speech, James says. It will dictate your direction on the two paths of life, despite its size. So he says, you have to pilot your tongue or your tongue will pilot you. Pilot your tongue, or your tongue will pilot you. When I was 16, I went on a mission trip to Honduras. It was a very meaningful time of being with a small group of Honduran Christians. And as usual, um, they ministered to our group way more than we ministered to them. We were doing construction work on a school there, I believe it was. On the day that we were supposed to leave Honduras, um, one of the locals very graciously let me, the 16-year-old boy, a young man, uh, ride his horse. And my dad says, as I'm getting on the horse, okay, you can go, Josh, but don't, don't be long because our bus leaves for the airport in an hour, right? Now, are you following me so far? You've got Josh on a horse in Honduras the day you're supposed to leave with all of your group. This is not a good scenario, right? I'd never ridden a horse before, but you know what? How hard can it be, I thought. So I was off. I was doing all the things you do in the movies. I remember like, whoa, you know, go boy, go, you know. And and he was going, and he was going faster and faster. The wind was blowing through my hair. I still had hair then. And it was blowing, It it was like a film. I was out in this country, you know. And all of a sudden the horse decides that he would like for Josh to see more of the Honduran countryside than what you can see from the main road in the village. And so he bounds off to the left, down the hill, out into the countryside of Honduras. We are 
and, and I'm saying, whoa, boy, whoa. And he's just saying, he's, I, I must have been telling him in his in horse, I was saying, go faster, go faster. Because that's what he did. He went faster and faster and faster. The trees are whizzing by and we're getting further and further away from, I didn't know where I was anyway. So I, you know, I just pictured me, I, I pictured looking up at the sky and seeing my plane go over, like my friends waving in the windows. If only I had known how to use that bit in the horse's mouth. If only I had been intentional and not careless in what direction I let the horse take me. If only I had taken stock of the kind of position that I was actually in with this huge, powerful animal at the mercy on his back. The creature was much stronger and smarter than me. Friends, James' invitation here is to be wise with our speech because it will lead to life, and to do otherwise is to be piloted by it out into the far reaches of Honduran countryside. And you're an American kid at 16 years old. Oh, by the way, the, I, I did make it back. I jumped off, I tied him to a tree, ran to the bus. Everyone was on the bus. Bags were packed. Dad was about to freak out. We made it, and I'm standing here today to tell you about it. So what happens, though, if we don't pilot our speech? Here's James's second point. The tongue is not only deceptively, deceptively directive in its power, it is deceptively destructive in its potential. Now look at verses 5b, the second part of verse 5, down to 8. 5b reads, How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. Now, James is going to use some hyperbole here, okay? The tongue is placed, he says, among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell, just in case you didn't get the point. Some of James' language here is a little bit confusing for us, but the point is clear. The potential for destruction by speech is enormous, gigantic. We cannot fathom the damage that could be done with speech. Not only that, but this kind of destruction actually moves pretty quickly outside of our control, doesn't it? It's like a forest fire. In verse 5, or like an untamed animal, verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Again, hyperbole, but you can see his point. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Isn't it amazing, James says, that humans can tame all kinds of animals, but we can't control our speech? A single sentence I know you've experienced this. A single sentence in a group of people, in a community, in a family, in a business, in an organization, a single sentence, just just a spark of anger or jealousy or meanness can produce a destructive force that can take down that family, that business, that community, and certainly a church. The tongue is deceptive in its destructive potential. I grew up a few hours from the mountains, uh, from the Smoky Mountain uh, Range in Tennessee. And when, as a Boy Scout, we would 
I'd go camping there. We would drive, you know, into the park, and um, I would. I remember seeing the big statue of Smokey the Bear. Do you know? Do you, do you, is that just a Tennessee thing? Or no? Of course not. Okay, good. Smokey the Bear. And you know what his uh, slogan? He was holding the sign. What does his slogan say? Only you can prevent forest fires. I vividly remember taking a hunter safety course with my dad where we were shown all of these like cautionary tale videos of what not to do, you know. They were meant to scare you, which is appropriate because you are in the woods and you can lose your life, right? Like you could, if you, if you don't know how to, what you're doing with shelter, if you don't know what you're doing with fire, if you don't know what you're doing with food, and so on. Well, um, one of these videos, uh, I remember watching, particularly the one on forest fires, some guy, you know, bad 80s vibe, and he he's finishes his sig and he tosses it next to his campsite. And moments later, the whole mountain range was ablaze, right, with this fire. And I'm watching this as a kid going through my hunter safety course, and I, I, was, in, I was terrified because I just knew the bad Boy Scout that I was, I mean, like, as in not gifted at Boy Scouting that I was, I knew that I was going to be the one who would inadvertently light the state of Tennessee on fire, right? I knew it was going to be me. I will be the next video for the generation to come of accidentally catching the whole state of Tennessee on fire. I knew it. St. James, in this section about the tongue and our speech, is like the smoky bear of saints. And he's saying to us, only you can prevent destroying a community with words. That's heavy, isn't it? So don't play with words, he says. Don't don't be deceived. Don't be silly about the possibility of destruction that even the most benign of disparaging remarks can unleash. The tongue is deceptive in its destructive potential. Here's the last point. The tongue is deceptive in its duplicitous productions. The final point James makes in our text today is that our words can actually deceive us, in addition to it deceiving others, about the nature of our faith. Remember we said early on, James is a wisdom literature writer. He's writing about life and death. There really is a sense of, all or nothing to kind of everything he says in this book, right? Faith and works, it's all or nothing. Like if you don't have works, you don't have faith, right? Um, He's doing the all or nothing thing with how we care for the poor and how rich people should not oppress poor people, favoritism. Last week we looked at that. And on and on he goes. So he's doing that with speech. And he says, in this all or nothing way, look at verse nine. He says, no one can tame the tongue. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. This is not like a, oh man, y'all shouldn't be doing this. This is like, no, that's not possible kind of thing. It is not possible, ultimately, for us to claim to be followers of Jesus and for our words to be filled with curses for people made in God's image. It is not possible. And to make his point, to make his point, he um, asks some rhetorical questions and gives some examples. Look at verse 11. I mean, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? What's the answer to that question? What's the answer? No, it's a rhetorical question. Does, Does a spring pour forth good water and bad water? No. 
Like you wouldn't drink out of a spring if you thought there was going to be even a chance of poisonous water, right? It's not possible. Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, he writes in verse 12, yield olives? What's the answer to that question? No. Let's try that together. Wait. Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives? What's the answer? No. No, it can't. Or can a grapevine bear figs? No. Can, no more can salt water yield fresh. Do you get the point? When he raises the example of praising God and cursing others, he's saying, this doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The tongue is deceptive because we actually do do that, don't we? We do bless, pe- uh, bless God and curse people. So he's asking us to look through the possible duplicitous nature of our speech and ask the question, what's really going on in our faith? Which one of these is true of you? Which one of these defines you? I close with this a bit of a story and an example from a man named Rabbi Joshua, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's the, uh, he's the, the Jewish man who is fa- famous for saying, words create worlds. Words create worlds. His daughter, Susanna, wrote an introduction to a collection of his essays after he died And she writes this about some things that her dad taught her. Words, he often wrote, are themselves sacred. God's tool for creating the universe and our tools for bringing holiness or for bringing evil into the world. He used to remind us, Susanna writes, that the Holocaust did not begin with the building of crematoria and Hitler did not come to power with tanks and guns. It all began with uttering evil words, with defamation, with language and propaganda. Words create worlds, he used to tell me when I was a child. They must be used carefully. Some words once having been uttered gain eternity and can never be withdrawn. The book of Proverbs reminds us, he wrote, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words Words are a matter of life and death. Reading Rabbi Heschel's words makes me think of how God spoke in the beginning of the Bible story and created life. Remember that? And then how God spoke again in the New Testament and there was his living word, the Logos, his son, Jesus. And now here we all are. Here we all are participating, as it were, in the divine story that God is writing. And his whole thing as author is to write life, to speak life. Did it in the beginning. He does it with Jesus, and he's still doing it with you and me. I picture each of us here like a word. Our community is a sentence, right? The question is, James would like to know, what would we like to say to the world? What if in the vile existence that is Twitter, my friends, what if, what if, what if we were a place where people could come to hear words of life and be blessed? What if our community thrived because we knew how deceptive our own tongues could be? 
What if, because we were protective of our community here, when people came, it was like a respite for them from the gnarly kind of violence of words online. Now more than ever, as we're all talking all around the world, everybody's got a microphone, don't they? And we're all talking about people and politics and pandemics and power. And we're saying all kinds of crazy things. What if we could be not for our own glory, but to show people Jesus, what if we could be a living embodiment of the word of God himself, Jesus? This is my prayer for me and for all of us. Amen.